Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now. Thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. Danielle Prescott is the author of Token Black Girl, a memoir. Danielle is a 15-year veteran of the beauty and fashion industry and a graduate of NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. A lifelong fashion obsessive, she was most recently the style director of BET.com. With Chrissy Rutherford, Prescott co-founded 2BG Consulting, which aids fashion and beauty brands and influencers on their anti-racism journeys. She dedicates her time to researching how feminism and social justice intersect with pop culture. An avid reader and writer, Prescott also loves TikTok, the arts, staying active, horseback riding, and exercising at any hour of the day. She has been featured recently in Harper's Bazaar, The Cut, and L, and was named one of Ulta Beauty's Muse 100, celebrating the most inspirational Black voices in beauty. Token Black Girl is her first book. 
Welcome, Danielle. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Token Black Girl, a memoir. Yay. (laughs) Congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Congratulations on your book. I wish I I read it before I came on the podcast, but I am a very slow reader. I don't know how all y'all in book publishing read so fast, but I have a book pile like so high of books to read. <laughs> no worries. I like I no, but we're both with little A, which is great. Yes. Um, I feel like it's been such a wonderful experience for me. So I hope you have. Oh, same. Uh, it's also my only experience. So I don't know how it usually goes, but it's been great so far. Oh, good. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So why don't you tell listeners what your memoir is about and what inspired you to write a memoir? Well, I never thought that I would write a memoir. So the fact that my first book is a memoir is kind of surprising to me. I started out my publishing journey wanting to write a fiction book. And once I started doing that, I realized like what a challenge that was because I don't have experience writing fiction. All of my experience is kind of in personal narrative or in interviewing people and doing features, writing about observations, doing research and all of that. So when I was stuck writing my fiction book, I was like, I guess a way to unstuck myself would be to do the thing I know how to do. And that comes easiest, which is writing, you know, from my own perspective. And once I started doing that, it, everything became a lot easier and I wasn't sure what I wanted to write about, but for a number of years in therapy, I had been speaking with my therapist about self-love and she had put me on a recovery journey from my eating disorder. And we were trying to kind of uncover the origins of some thought patterns and things that she calls limiting beliefs. It's like a therapy term that a lot of people use. And one of the things that kept coming up was that, you know, she's like, you don't love yourself. You need to work on self-love. And I was like, of course I love myself. I don't understand what you mean by that. And really it was that I had been loving myself only conditionally. So I have been setting parameters around like how I would love myself. So only if I have a job that I like, or if I'm achieving something that I like, or if I dress the way I like, or my hair is done the way I like, all of these things. And it was like, why is myself at my essence very hard for me to love it? I don't understand why I think I need to do all these things in order to like earn love, I guess. And so once I started tracing back the origins to where those thoughts came from, I arrived at white supremacy. So I was like, I need to write a book on how white supremacy affected me and also my participation in it when I was a member of the media. Because for many years after I was a consumer of media, I was also a producer of media. I worked at various fashion publications in New York City. So I I was also responsible for distributing the same kind of messaging that ultimately was very harmful to me. Interesting. Okay. So when you decided to sort of dig back and go into your life and everything, which you wrote about really in such vivid detail and, you know, it was really great. I mean, some of the things like your third grade or I don't know what grade it was when the girls were writing that mean note to you in school, which like broke my heart. I feel like that was one of those like pivotal moments for you. Maybe you could talk about that and maybe I'm wrong, but I just feel like that's when you sort of realized like that there was, or there could be perceived to be a difference among you and your peers. Anyway, maybe talk about that moment and how it affected you. So for anyone who doesn't know, 
I missed this part when I was supposed to introduce the book, but a lot of it is about my experiences in private prep school in Westchester County. And then I I went to school in Greenwich, Connecticut before I worked in fashion. So a lot of my interactions with my classmates were actually influenced by prejudice, racism, et cetera. But I did not have the vocabulary or the emotional intelligence to really tackle it. And it was something that I was like very ashamed of for like, a long time because, you know, as you become an adult and you do get more solid in your own identity, you kind of want to hide if you weren't always there. Right. So I was like, oh, I don't want people to know that I wasn't always like, wow, I love being black. This is the most amazing thing. And so it was, it was very like shameful, like to revisit childhood memories, but in writing a lot of this stuff, I've had several other girls who also, or women who identify as token Black girls or did when they were growing up say that, you know, I didn't find out I was Black until I was 12. Nobody had this conversation with me until later in life. And I'm not sure really what the parenting manual said at the time. I grew up in the 90s and for our household, it was mostly this colorblind messaging. My, I don't think that anyone wanted to emphasize that there was necessarily a difference. But eventually, I think in, in the life of a child of color in America, your parents have to let you know that there is a difference between you and your friends if you are the only person of color. And so for me, that happened kind of against their wishes, my wishes, when somebody at school, I went to, I transferred schools and somebody was like, I don't like the new girl because she's black. And the message then got relayed to me and it became this big scandal. And so I hope that what people get from the book is talking to children about race is important from both sides because you don't want to be the child finding out that you're a minority at the hands of another child. But I'm like, you also don't want your child to be the one who is saying, I don't like so-and-so because they're Black. Or in a lot of cases, using the N-word, you know, or or using another slur um, because they have heard it repeated and they know exactly how to use it. Because it's weird, even though parents might not tell children that, they have a way of finding things out. Yes. Kids are way smarter than parents think for the most part. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Well, you also go into and are you comfortable talking about your eating disorder? Do you mind talking? Oh yeah. About that? Okay. I mean, I know you wrote about it, but you know, it's different when we're face to face or zoom to zoom or whatever. But you talk about, you know, coming to terms with your own body. You talk about starting ballet at age three, which obviously puts the body into a a whole nother realm of attention and form and all of that. And, and how you were determined to make yourself as thin as possible and to sort of outsmart your own body in a way from becoming what it was supposed to become. Tell me a little more about that. I think that really what I was trying to achieve the most was that I wanted to be the emptiest vessel because I felt that everyone was constantly projecting their wants and desires onto me, what they wanted me to behave like, be, do. And it felt so powerless to me. Like it was so outside of my control. I often write about how I was, you know, on the cover or feature on the website of every school that I've ever attended. And they put my face there. You know, when I worked at Elle, I was on the side of the Hearst building. They put my face there and then... 
I am, you know, not allowed in certain meetings or I'm left off of emails with no one asks you, hey, is this okay with you? And I did not really have the tools to be like, I'm uncomfortable with this. So I was like, instead, I will just make myself as empty as possible. And for me, it was a lot about control. If I feel like all of that stuff is out of my control, the one thing I can control is like how I look. And it made me feel very powerful to be in control over my own body and to say, I don't have needs like other people. There's a lot of people with eating disorders who are like, you know, mind over matter people. They think it's like their superpower. So it's like, I never have to go to the bathroom. I never sweat. I don't have human needs because I can override them. I'm superhuman and it makes you feel really powerful in a way, but it's just not a sustainable way to live. Like eventually you have to address like it's it's your mental health, it's your physical health, it's your emotional health. It's all of those things working together. It's very holistic. So there's not a way to like isolate these things. So when did you first develop your eating disorder? Can you talk about that? Or like, when did you feel that, you know, quote unquote power from starving essentially? And how did it transition to more bulimia and all of that? Mm -hmm. I would say probably age like 12 or 13, because I I really noticed that I I felt like I was getting much bigger than all of my friends were. We always used to share clothes and swap clothes. And all of a sudden I could not fit into their clothes. I also had some sort of strange idea where I don't understand where I got it, that I had to wear the clothing size for the age I was. So if I was 12 years old, I had to wear a size 12. I have no idea why I thought that. I definitely (laughs) thought it was real. I also was like, my life will be over if I get over a hundred pounds. Again, there's, there's, you know, many ways that this is communicated in television shows. At the time, there were horrible tabloid magazines that would often print weights of women or or when they gained weight and when they lost weight, they would let you know and it would be at the grocery store. Like you could not really escape this obsession with like other people's bodies. So it felt only natural to also have an obsession with your own body. And so I would restrict my eating a lot. And eventually it turned into bulimia because you get so hungry. I was very active as a child. So I was played a lot of sports. I did a lot of things. And you need energy for that. So you need food. And so I would feel so guilty though for eating. I was like, I have to get rid of this thing that I did. It was just, it was like a cycle of shame that almost never went away. And then of course it becomes like a lot easier when you leave your parents' house. Like things are are very hard to control when, when you are living under someone else's roof and you have to follow certain rules. We had a lot of family dinners. So I felt like I had to be very creative in how I kind of avoided food. But I discovered that being like, I'm studying or I have homework. That was like also a really good way. So again, kind of like achieving myself out of having natural needs was something I wanted to do and show everyone. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And how do you feel like you were able to get this under control? Well... It all happened kind of accidentally. When I turned 30, I froze my eggs. So when you when you go through that process, it, you have to do like IVF to essentially like simulate your follicles to produce a lot of eggs so they can harvest them. And there's three rules, no drinking, no exercising, no sex. And I was an obsessive exerciser. And I was like, well, they obviously don't mean no exercise for me. They mean no exercise for people who don't exercise, but I'll continue to exercise. But the other stuff, I don't even drink. So I don't, I was like, I don't have a problem with that. He's like, I don't have a partner. So I'll be abstinent. And the first day that I was on hormone shots, I took myself to SoulCycle and I started cramping in SoulCycle. And I got so scared because egg freezing is so expensive. And I was like, wow, what, how dumb am I that I thought that I was going to mess this up. And actually I'm sitting here doing exactly what the doctor told me not to do. And I was like, I really want it to work because I don't want to do it twice. It's really disruptive to your life. Like you have to go to the office pretty much every day for two weeks, get an ultrasound and blood test, like to the doctor's office. You, you know, have like to focus on giving yourself these shots at the same time every single night. And because I was pumping myself full of hormones, I was hungrier than I have ever been in my life. So I just started eating because again, I really wanted it to work. And I was a little like superstitious. I was like, I have to just like try my best to like make sure that this is successful. And so I stopped exercising and I ate a lot and I gained like almost 20 pounds in like two weeks, which was really alarming to me. But I was also very sure that after it was over, I could lose it. I was like, no problem. I'll just, you know, go back to dieting after this is over. And I realized like, I was just so exhausted by it all. I was like, what if I just stopped? And it was also around the time of lockdown and quarantine. So I wasn't seeing a lot of people. So that also made it easier. I didn't have to like wear fashion clothes and have to go to parties. That made it a little bit easier. So then slowly but surely I started experimenting with being a little bit healthier. And I think having an eating disorder is kind of like being an alcoholic. You have to think about it every day. You have to think like I'm choosing every day, like not to revert back to old behaviors. 
but I try my best. So I think it's going well. It's been about three years now. Wow. Well, it takes a lot of time to undo so many years of entrenched behaviors and that's, it takes, you know, be patient and, uh, (laughs) You know, it's not perfection. And I know you know all this. I don't know why I feel like I need to tell you, but I don't know. Well, the listeners might not know. And it's also like so much of that behavior was a coping mechanism too for me to like when I had something stressful happen, I would be like, oh, great. Okay. So I'll just like push food aside or I won't eat or I'll focus on this thing. And, you know, you can't really do that anymore. Like I have to remind myself, you have to eat. Like I'm like, after this, I have to eat breakfast. You are, you're on the East coast, right? So it's like you're an hour ahead of me. So I'm a little behind, but yeah, I'm like, I have to remember eat breakfast, then eat lunch, then eat dinner. It's okay to like stop and want a snack in the middle of the day. It's a lot. It's yes. (laughs) I have a lifetime fascination and deep interest in eating disorders for several people who were close to me who had really serious eating disorders and, uh, I majored in psychology in college and I worked at the Yale Center for Eating and Weight Disorders and I worked at the Adolescent Inpatient Unit of a psychiatric hospital and have just, you know, learned a lot and I've struggled with my own weight in my own ways Mm -hmm. for years and years. And Mm -hmm. anyway, it's just been something I've done a lot of research on. And and so I feel incredibly, you know, empathetic towards what you're going through and the phase of recovery that you're in. And, you. you know, it's hard because food is everywhere. It's not like an alcoholic, not that that's easy. That's also horrifically hard, but, you know, at least you can choose not to go to a bar or like put yourself in the scenario, but with food, it's everywhere. It's not like you can be oh, like, well, you know, I'm not good. It, it's, it's, you can't get away from it. So you can't. And I, I think for a long time, I also hated holidays. Like I hated like, especially Thanksgiving, the worst. And everyone loves those holidays. And it was like amplified by having social media. It just became this other thing as well. Yeah. So it's very, it's very hard to manage because food is also, it's very cultural. It's how people express love. Like they want to feed you. Yeah. And I understand that, but it's also, I think, hard to explain to people like it's not that I'm rejecting your love is that I don't think I can accept this package as you're giving it so it's it's a lot of negotiating personalities and helping to open up but I also think the book has made it easier for me because personally I think that as you know working with people with eating disorders like the secrecy of it all becomes its own thing. So I felt like I was hiding so much from so many people. And I, you know, write about this in the book that once I had these kind of jobs in media where it was like supposed to be part of my job to make it look so fun. And like, it was the best place to be in the world. And you know, that, and you're hungry and no one, you, no one can know that part of it. It just becomes really difficult. So now that the book is out there, I feel very free and relieved kind of everyone can know. And I also hope that some other people kind of maybe realize like how serious their responsibility is as members of the media. I mean, there's no shortage of research that shows us that how harmful certain imagery and language is to be out there. And yet I don't understand, like it doesn't stop. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So what is your personal outlook on 
you know, your own contribution going forward? Like, how do you want to see yourself professionally? Obviously you've written this book to counteract some of the, you know, to point out the the things people should be aware of and start that dialogue or continue that dialogue rather. But, you know, given all of your work experience in that realm, like, what are you thinking sort of now? Like, where do you want your career to go and all of that? Or maybe you haven't thought about it that much, but I don't know. Well, I really want to write more books. I really do want to write fiction as well. And I have a consulting agency with a business partner who's also a former editor. Uh, It's called 2BG Consulting. And we help brands, beauty and fashion brands, craft anti-racist identities and help them to be more inclusive in their language and their marketing so that, you know, when people are introduced to their brand, Brand or interacting with their brand, they are feeling welcomed by it and not necessarily excluded by it. That's great. Really wonderful. Thanks. Have there been any surprising reactions to your book? I don't think so. You know, I've had some lifelong friends reach out who've known me for a long time and some white friends and say something like, you know, I had really fond memories of us growing up and I'm like, I did as well. You know, the, the book is, is not heavy on like the good times necessarily because, um, you know, like I, I feel like I spent so long projecting that everything was perfect and fine. And my participation in being in all those photographs, like, I'm like, you had that story. So now I want to tell the story that feels most authentic to me. Um, but it doesn't mean that, that like I had a bad childhood or that things weren't happy or I didn't have happy memories. I think for every negative experience I had in the book at the hands of white people, I also had twice as many positive experiences, you know? And like I have several friends that I can trust. I don't know if this is in the book. We might've cut it out, but my father's mother, that grandma on my side was always like questioning. My mom was so shocked. She was like, you are going to let them sleep over white people's houses. Like you're going to let them play with these girls. And she would tell me, she'd be like, those girls are not your friends. Like, don't be fooled. And it was because I didn't know this at the time, of course, but she just had so many negative experiences with white women that she was just like, I want to protect you from that. She couldn't believe that my parents were like willingly putting me in situations. And for the most part, it was okay. But I do want people to know that like when it's not okay, it's very serious. And that, you know, it's, this is not something that's going to work itself out. It's something that we need to be very proactive about challenging before something goes very wrong. Excellent. Danielle, thank you. Thank you for coming on and talking about Token Black Girl, your memoir and your experience and being so open and honest and helping so many other women out there by sharing your experience. So it's really wonderful. Thank you for having me. And thanks for having me in your nice library. (laughs) You're welcome. I love your setting. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Happy place. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 